You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's episode is going to be a listener Q&A episode. Uh, not too long ago, I had uh, put up a post asking if you guys would be interested in a Q&A episode, and you all responded with quite a few questions, things like that, that you wanted me to answer on the air, which is pretty cool. I like doing audience... Uh, I like getting audience interaction and uh, input from you guys, so I thought this was a great opportunity to make use of that. So I'm going to answer some questions tonight. And uh, of course, first of all, I want to just thank everyone, thank all the patrons, thank everyone who left the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I have a $3 tier and a $5 tier. $5 tier gets you a shout-out and beginning of an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. And uh, other than that, of course, just keep listening and enjoying the show. That's really what it's all about. So uh, with all that put aside, let's get into tonight's episode and let's see what questions we've got. So the first question isn't really a frog question. It's a little bit different. Uh, are there any turtle or tortoise species that I'm interested in? Uh, I actually do have a turtle. I have a red-eared slider by the name of Fluffy. And uh, my wife and I bought Fluffy about about 19 years ago in a snowstorm, <laughs> if you believe that. Uh, for some reason, we were out in a snowstorm and it possessed us to buy a turtle, so we've had her for quite some time. I, I enjoy Fluffy. I enjoy turtles. I just never really got into them to the extent that I did with frogs. I don't really know what it is, if it's just a personal preference or what, but um, never really got into it. I was able to do some volunteer work with a sea turtle rescue organization in the early 2000s, which was a lot of fun. That was very rewarding. Uh, a lot of cold stunned and sick sea turtles would come in, usually in, in, in the fall or in the winter. And the facility did a lot of rehab and, and ultimately released them. So that was a lot of fun. In fact, there was, uh, if, if any of you live in the Baltimore area and you go in the, the National Aquarium in Baltimore, I don't know if it's still there or not, but there's a three-legged turtle, a uh, three-legged sea turtle, I should say, that came through that facility. So if uh, if you see if you see that turtle, say hi because I haven't seen him in about twenty years. So, but um, I, I enjoy turtles. I just they did just never really grabbed me the same way that frogs did. Question number two: Who are my favorite breeders to buy from? Okay, this was a tough question, and i i thought about I thought about it for a long time in terms of how I wanted to answer this. And to be honest, I can't pick a particular person or company per se because I've spoken to so many people on the show who deal with, with frogs and animals, and they, they've all been great. But I'd still like to answer the question, even though it's going to be in a little bit of a different way. So I thought rather than pick a single person or entity or whatnot, I figured I might want to list the qualities that I look for in a seller, someone that I want to buy from. So these are some qualities that make me feel comfortable buying from someone. Uh, the first is a solid understanding of the species being worked with. This person should have a strong working knowledge about the animals being sold and be able to answer any and all questions that you, the buyer, may have. This person should really, um, I mean, no one's an expert, but this person should be as close as an expert as possible to the given species that you're looking to acquire. Should understand that the, the care, husbandry, and breeding through all life cycles. And, you know, look, if you're looking to buy a pamilio, find someone who has a lot of experience working with pamilio. Uh, same thing, tree frogs, chameleons, arachnids, a breed a dog, whatever it is, find someone who really knows the material and go with that. Next on this list, I would say go with good customer service. I'm a big proponent of good customer service. I think that that can really make or break an experience with a seller. So communication is important. You're going to want to work with someone who will work with you, someone who returns emails or answers texts in a, in a timely fashion, 
I mean, obviously don't text someone at two in the morning and expect it. A return, don't expect a return text within a few minutes. So you have to be reasonable with people, but good communication is important. And if there is an issue uh, within reason, you know, you're going to want to deal with someone who's going to help you resolve that issue in a way that works out for the both of you. So communication is definitely a good point. Third on the list, I would say would be a good reputation in the hobby. Reputation goes a long way and it kind of goes hand in hand with the first two things that I mentioned. So you're going to want to know, go with someone who is reliable and generally considered to be a trustworthy source among other hobbyists. Talk to other hobbyists, find out who they've used, find out what their experiences are and avoid fly-by-night sellers. In the animal world, some people want to kind of get into it for a quick buck. And fortunately, I've never had to deal with that with, with people. Um, I mean, I've run into a couple of oddballs here and there at expos that have kind of just, you know, they, they're kind of just in it to make a quick buck off of frogs. But I'll be honest, most of the people that I've worked with on the show, or I should say everybody I've worked with on the show, uh, have been really reputable people with a long history in the hobby and good, solid reputation. So that's another thing I look for, you know, is just kind of avoid anything. That, if you think something shady, it probably is. So try and focus on people who are well-established, have a reputation, and have a good understanding that the community likes to buy from them. So, you know, kind of trust your gut with that. Fourth, I would say go with someone who works with captive bread. If you're willing to work with someone who does like imports and whatnot, like that's totally cool. I know there's a lot of places like DeSoros and, and Wakiri. Um, they bring imports in. Their stuff is good. It's clean. That That's totally cool too because um, technically those animals sort of are captive bred. But uh, just try to avoid stuff that's, been like questionably imported or something that may not necessarily come from a sustainable source because we really want to support sustainable aspects of the hobby. We want to be able to support captive propagation, you know, whether it's in the country that you live in or or in a neighboring country or whatever. So go with captive bread, try and avoid wild stuff. And again, if if you're at an expo or something like that, it can be hard because you have a lot of vendors that you might not know. So try to go with a vendor that you know, someone who has a good track record with producing captive and the same thing with online or in-person sales or whatever go with someone that you know has a good track record with producing captive bread and someone who really wants to produce captive bread because that's kind of where the hobby should be going anyway uh next and i i thought about the the best way to add this quality it would really be i guess a good sign that the seller values the animals that's being sold Animals aren't products on Amazon that we're going to just get the next day. So you're going to want to deal with a seller who's going to want to put the well-being of the animals first when it comes to shipping. So if you're buying animals and the seller says, hey, look, there's a snowstorm coming. I want to hold your animals until the snowstorm is gone or there's a heat wave or something like that. Those are good qualities to look for. So a seller shouldn't be really quick to like rush you out the animal the next day if there's going to be weather conditions or whatnot. So Again, with all those other qualities I said, like communication, solid understanding, good reputation, this is another one of those qualities. I mean, I've had sellers that I've bought from before, and I'll say, look, listen, it's going to be like 95 degrees here the next couple of weeks. Can you ship it to a local FedEx or UPS or, or wherever? Um, and I've always had a, I've always had a pretty good response from people like, yeah, that's totally cool. I was going to recommend that anyway. So, you know, make sure the person has good shipping policies if you're buying something online. And um, like I said, be, be willing to wait. Like, look, you know, it's a living thing. It's coming your way. Someone's shipping it to you. Wait for the right time. Don't expect it to just show up out of the blue the next day because, like I said, it's, it's a living thing. And if you're dealing with a good vendor, the good vendor should obviously understand that as well. 
And finally, I want to say, don't be afraid to support small businesses. There's a lot of really great small businesses. I've had so many people on the show. I mean, people, even people who are just hobby breeders, they really just enjoy working with the species. It's a hobby to them. They take a lot of pride in it. Don't be afraid to go with small people. You know, you meet someone in an expo and you develop a good relationship. That's a great way to start it. You know, go with a small business, um, you know, support someone that's that's maybe just starting out in the community or something like that. You know, look, you'll kind of know after a while. You'll, you'll get to know who's good to work with and who's not. And like I said, don't forget about the little companies out there because a lot of them offer a, a lot. And uh, you can almost get a personalized touch with those more so than you're going to get with the bigger companies. I like to deal with smaller entities because I find, like I said, all those other qualities, the understanding, the communication, especially communication, a lot easier when you're dealing with more of a small time operation. Question three, what is my opinion on line breeding for specific traits? This was another tough one for me. I I mean, again, this is really just a matter of my opinion. And um, personally, I'm a big fan of wild types. I always have been because when I was a kid, I never thought I'd see so many of the species that we have available in the hobby today. I never thought I would see them in anyone's private collection. Never. I never even thought I'd see any of them in zoos. So I'm still kind of taken by how impressive some of these animals just looked at in their wild type. I mean, I still think that wild type ball pythons and bearded dragons are beautiful, even though we have an innumerable number of morphs for them today. However, I, I work with a great many people who breed amphibians for certain traits, and it, it, it's important to distinguish between line breeding for a specific trait and um, and um, something that might compromise the genetic integrity or the health of an animal. So, People who are breeding for a specific color pattern or whatnot, whatnot, I mean, it's totally cool as long as the animal's healthy. And I haven't really seen any evidence from anywhere that selective breeding for certain traits in frogs has had any adverse physical effects on them. So, I mean, to my knowledge, if you're getting a frog that's just, uh, you know, an albino or uh, has a, or is melanistic or whatever, I mean, I'm not quite sure how many different morphs there are of different species, but. I've never heard anyone say that a frog was unhealthy. I know that in other places, like um, like I mentioned the ball pythons, there's a morph of ball python that has a um, has issues with with balance. I think I, I saw a paper recently that was published that had the explanation being that there is a um, there's, there's some sort of a defect in like a congenital defect in their inner ear, which causes them to have this wobbly um, this head wobbling thing going on. So, I mean, in that case, like that's an example of something that you wouldn't want to select for, but I haven't seen anything like that with frogs. So again, it's really more of a personal choice. It's kind of an aesthetic thing. I just happen to prefer wild type, but as long as the animal's healthy, I really don't see any harm in having species that have been bred to enhance specific traits. I mean, we do it with everything else. You know, we have cattle, we have chickens, we have breeds of dogs that have been selectively bred for certain things. And again, I, I haven't really seen any evidence that shows me that frogs suffer any adverse effect from it. You know, I mean, obviously, if there was a situation like that, um, you know, it's something you would think about accordingly. But I mean, to be honest, I really don't see any problem with it. I just I have my preferences is always wild type, but I know a lot of people like different color varieties and things like that. And like I said, it's totally cool. I know a lot of people who work with it and they're really successful. So um, yeah, like I said, it's really just a matter of personal opinion. You know, I just I have mine and, you know, it's really just a matter of aesthetics, I think. So let's move on to question number four. Are water features deeper than a few inches dangerous to dart frogs? 
again, another good question. Since dart frogs aren't aquatic, I I don't trust them to have the same swimming abilities as, say, an aquatic species like an American bullfrog. Generally, water features aren't... I mean, they can look very nice if they're done well. I know a lot of people who do it and pull it off, but they aren't really needed for dart frogs. So I would just say if you are going to incorporate something like that, you'd want to do it in such a way that it really wouldn't compromise the frog's ability to escape, meaning you're not going to set it up in such a way that the frog can't get out if it falls in the water. And you, it may vary, actually, based on species. I found that a lot of the smaller species tend to manage better when they fall into water than larger species, like my epipetobates. I mean, those things have like little swimmer's bods. Like they, they, can, they can book through that water. But my terribilis, they're these big golf ball-sized blobs. And I just don't imagine them having the same agility and be able to handle getting in and out of the water. I, I just, like I said, I wouldn't want to put the animal in a situation where it gets stressed and it gets overworked trying to escape. So if you are going to incorporate a water feature, I would just leave plenty of means for the dart frog to get out. Um, could something get stuck and drown? Yes, it, it, it can. It can happen. I haven't personally had it, had it happen in my collection because I've never really had it in such a way that that could happen. But like anything else, that's a use discretion. They can swim, they can get out of the water, but I just, I wouldn't make it in such a way that it would would pose a potential hazard. So if you're really committed to a nice paludarium and you don't really want to worry about anything like that, I would just say go with another species, go with Thelioderma, go with like Phyllobates, uh, not Phyllobates, excuse me, Firebelly Toads, anything that's going to be an aquatic frog. And again, then I really wouldn't worry too much, but um, I wouldn't overthink it incredibly. Just use your discretion. If you think something's a bad idea, it probably is. So, you know, just take that for what it's worth, I guess. Now, moving on to question number five. Um, okay, it's not another, it's a, another non-frog question. Uh, have I ever considered a bioactive enclosure for my pythons? Well, I prefer, I guess, what people would consider the bioactive mode for other species because the thing about the blood pythons is if I'm going to have microfauna in there, there's not going to be much for them to do unless the python actually goes to the bathroom. And if you've ever kept blood pythons, you know, when they go, it's absolutely horrific. It's, it's, (laughs) they only do it like maybe like once or twice a year. So I, I, that I would just have to, I couldn't leave something like that in there. I would have to remove it regardless of what's in there, how big the enclosure is, because it's just, it's, it's disastrous. So I just don't see it being practical in the situation. Um, then I'd have to feed the isopods and I'd have to feed the springtails and whatnot, other stuff. So I just, I don't see it really accomplishing the intended purpose. I keep them on craft paper and they're pretty happy on that. They have their hides. They have layers of craft paper to hide in. And I'll, I'll throw them some things in now and again to kind of give them a little bit of enrichment or stimulus. I mean, they're pretty much like the quintessential ambush predators. They just sit and wait and do really nothing every day. but. I'll put some things in there every so often. I'll put like a, uh, uh, like an old cardboard tube, or I might take a, something so simple as like a, a newspaper and just ball it up and like leave it in the corner, just something for them to explore. But uh, I and many other blood python keepers generally just don't do it because it really doesn't, I mean, the snakes aren't really going to get much out of it. And the amount of waste that they produce during 90% of the year, there's just nothing there for the microfauna to eat. And when they do produce something, it's it's so much that it would overwhelm any cleanup crew. So um, I would just, I would say use the mode for different species where it's a little bit more appropriate. Like dart frogs, the whole 
mode works well because dwarf frogs make a lot of waste. There's a lot of decaying plant matter in there. There's a lot of, it's just, I see it working better there than in other situations. So for the time being, I'm just going to kind of continue to keep the snakes as they are. Uh, I have been looking to convert them back onto cypress mulch just because it maintains the humidity a little bit better, but I'm still having a hard time finding a source that I'm comfortable with because you have to be careful. Even if something says cypress mulch, it can have other odd stuff in it. I don't want cedar or pine or anything like that sneaking its way in there and potentially making the snake sick. So uh, I'm still searching for a good spot to get it from. But um, yeah, if you're going to go with the, the whole bioactive thing, I, I I personally wouldn't really recommend it for blood pythons just from a practical standpoint. Um, I mean, even putting plants in there, I mean, these things are beasts and they'll uproot plants or anything like even close to that. So um, I guess in a big enough enclosure, you could probably put plants, but I just, again, I just, I don't really see it being that practical and it makes a little bit, it makes a little bit more work for me than it would, than it would save for me. So I, I guess that's the only way I could go about it. Okay, moving on. Are newts a taxonomic group or just a collective name for unrelated salamanders? Good question. Uh, scientifically speaking, newts are salamanders in the subfamily, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce it. I think it's Pluridelini, and uh, they have a larval stage, they have a terrestrial stage, which is also called the eft stage, and an adult stage, which can either be like primarily or, or partially aquatic. So from a taxonomic point of view, they are, yes, they are a unique subfamily. Moving on to the next question, what other podcasts am I listening to? I listen to a lot of podcasts. Some of them are just for enjoyment. Some of them are research. I kind of like to listen to what other podcasters are doing and find out what their, uh, you know, what their techniques are, what guests they have on. But um, animal wise, I listen to Bill Strand has two great podcasts. He's got the Reptile Entrepreneur and the Chameleon Academy podcast, which are both great shows. Bill was a big inspiration to me before I started out. Uh, they have a lot of unique stuff. I mean, the reptile entrepreneur is actually really unique because Bill talks a lot about how to build a reptile business from the ground up and that he covers so much. So it's really unlike any other animal podcast out there. So that's definitely one I'd like to listen to. Uh, I also like to listen to the animals at home with Dylan Perrin. Dylan, had, again, was another, in, another influential person for me before I started. And he's, he's, his guests are incredible. He's always got some amazing people on there. Uh, I just had a I had a recent pleasure of doing a, a uh, collaboration with uh, Daffy's Roundtable. Great up and coming podcast. Uh, he's got a lot of cool stuff on there. He's got some great guests from the uh, I guess the realm of like social media, YouTubers and whatnot. And um, I think some really good things are going to come from that show. So I like listening to his as well. I also think it's worth mentioning the Herpeticulture Network and Justin Smith. J- Justin has put in a tremendous amount of work in terms of developing the herpeticulture network and and his he's got several podcasts so i'm not really much of a snake podcast person but justin definitely deserves a serious pat on the back for all he's put in i mean he's he really set the bar with reptile podcasts so um i definitely want to give him a give him a shout out for that uh, other than that i i really don't listen to every animal podcast i really more into believe it or not paranormal podcast that was originally how I became interested in the, in the platform about uh, about eight years ago or so. Uh, I like listening to Sasquatch Chronicles. I like From the Shadows. I enjoy Paranormal Portal. I like Into the Fray. 
primarily like witness account stuff. I, I like hearing people tell stories and um, anything that has that format where it's kind of a interview format, people telling their stories. And I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people aren't into this. They probably think I'm nuts for listening to it, but I, I enjoy it. It helps me get to sleep at night. And here's another question. What am I listening to when I do maintenance in my frog room? Well, I not podcast stuff. I've been on, I mean, I, I have my musical taste, or I don't know if you guys even have any idea what I'm talking about when I go through all this stuff, but um, I've been listening to a lot of Chromags. I've been on this Chromags kick for, for kind of like the past year. Um, there's a new, well, I shouldn't say new, I mean, it's an old album. There's a reissue of some Cold as Life albums that I've been playing. Um, I've been listening to Sub Zero's Happiness Without Peace album and a bunch of other stuff, like a lot of stuff from when I was younger, like a lot of underground stuff that was came out in like the eighties, nineties, and early two thousands. Like even like weird demo tape stuff is now all over Amazon. So it's actually pretty cool. Like I'll pull up Amazon and I'll find some record that I, I never thought would even have made it past like nineteen ninety seven or two thousand and one or whatever, and they're all on Amazon. So it's been pretty cool. I've been kind of binge listening on stuff from like that I listened to when I was young, but um yeah, I got kind of diverse tastes, but that's what I've been listening to just within the past couple of weeks. Now, here's a supplement question. What brands of supplement do I recommend for large Ufaga? I haven't kept large Ufaga, so I really couldn't answer from experience. I'm going to assume that their needs are probably similar to Pamilio, but I know that there's a variety of supplements out there that are produced by different people, which all seem to work well. I'd have to defer to someone who's kept them for a while. I would say that, in my opinion, Probably best thing would be to vary the supplements from time to time. Uh, if you're looking to get higher egg production, um, again, if you go back to episode 71 with Matt Dugas, he did a lot of work with Pamilio and uh, carotenoids, which his research showed was very, very helpful with successful reproduction. So uh, I'm going to assume you would want to go with a, a good carotenoid supplement. Um but again, I would reach out to someone who works with Ufaga. If you want to find someone who works with like Histrionica or something like that and find out what they're using. I know there's quite a few supplements out there. Some people prefer one over the other. Some people like to alternate. I'm just a big fan of alternating. I think that kind of mix your supplements up and supplement accordingly. Obviously, don't overdo it. Don't overdose like don't you don't overdose like vitamin A or something like that. Um, same thing with D. You know, just just be careful. Find an appropriate supplement that is either like a daily supplement. I mean, you know, I use the Rapashi Calcium Plus with that little leopard gecko thing on it. Uh, I use those for almost all my feedings, but I also supplement with some other stuff. So uh, find someone who works with Larger Faga. Um, reach out to someone who's got more experience producing them and see what that person's using. If the person's had good success with a certain, a certain supplement, try that. I just, I don't want to pick out a particular brand and say that it works when I've never actually worked with Ufaga and seen um, any appreciable difference between one or the other. And here's another Ufaga question. God, you guys are killing me with the Ufaga. How can I tell if my Ufaga Pamilio are a sexed pair or just stubborn? Uh, good question. Unfortunately, I don't have a direct answer. Tinks are a dead giveaway because you can sex them visually. The males have these big heart-shaped toe pads and the, the females have a different kind of contour to the back. Uh, species like Pamilio, a bit more subtle. I would just hope for some calling and some eggs. If not, maybe try switching up the pair. If you have a couple of individuals of the same locale, maybe 
split the pair up, make a trio. I mean, you try try some different things. You'd be surprised. Sometimes the dynamic will change, and you might just get calling and eggs like crazy, like one day. Uh, I've had it before, with, not familiar, but with different species. I had a group of epipedabates that it was a sex trio, and the female died. And um, I introduced a couple of other individuals. I didn't hear call. I heard nothing for like months, and then one day the calling went like crazy, and now I'm getting eggs like every other, like every three days. So it, it can change quickly. Maybe you have an individual that's not sexually mature. I mean. There could be any number of things. You might have two males, two females, who knows. But uh, I would say just be patient, see what happens, hope for some calling. If not, maybe get a couple of other individuals, maybe try to pair them up differently and see if that works. Okay, moving on. Why do I think that Pac-Man frogs aren't uh, aren't good beginner species? This is one of those statements that I made a while back that I guess is going to kind of haunt me forever, but uh, I really should clarify. Um, a, a while back, I, I can't remember exactly where it was, I someone had asked me about beginner species, and I mentioned that I don't think the Pac-Man can be a great beginner species, but I don't think they can be a bad species for beginners. Let me, let me, let me explain. So they're a great beginner species when everything goes right. When everything goes right, they eat well, they're relatively easy to care for. They're just, they're, they are easy. My issue is when something goes wrong, and that's when they can be tricky. I don't know if a beginner could handle it if the frog doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So over 30 years, I've kept probably 10 different individuals, and they were all different. Some were aggressive eaters, some were really shy eaters, and some like flat out refused. As I've also mentioned before, I have, well, as of now, I have two. I have the Ceratophrys arita which I've mentioned before, it had a prolapse and it, it only it, it will only accept food as a cyst feed. It's it's just not a good feeder. But on the other hand, I have a Cranwell's horn frog, which eats like a champ. So one is extremely easy and the other one is not. So when they eat well, they're easy. And when they don't, well, it, it can be tricky. So you have to ask yourself as a beginner, you buy a frog, you're told that this frog is an eating machine. It basically just kind of sits around and its husbandry is, is fairly straightforward. How do you how do you get a beginner to assist feed without any real experience? I mean that's 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 my issue. So I mean I have both frogs, they're literally in the same exact husbandry situations. One eats and one doesn't. So now I have to baby the arita for the rest of its life. I have to I have to assist feed it and whatnot. Um, whereas the other frog I don't do anything. So I could see that being very, very intimidating to a beginner if something goes wrong. I suppose it could happen with other species of frogs, but I think the idea that people are under the assumption that they're easy because they do nothing but eat. And for some reason, we think that, you know, if an animal's eating well, it's, it's, or if an animal eats real easily, that it's, it's, it's a good beginner species. Again, it's if something goes wrong. You know what I mean? If, if there's a problem, I mean, you know, trying to pry one of these little guys' mouths open with like the side of a credit card or a plastic spoon, it, it can be difficult, you know? And a younger person, a beginner, I don't really see comfortable doing that. I mean, in fact, when I was younger, when I had a frog that I bought, uh, actually, I shouldn't say, well, I, I bought it, but it was an adult, kind of, I paid someone to surrender it to me. Same thing, the frog just didn't eat. And I didn't know what to do at the time. So I just assumed, I just had to be patient. I wasn't familiar with how to assist feed or anything like that. And the frog just didn't last very long, you know. But again, at the time, you know, 30 years ago, I was still a beginner. I was a younger person. I was a kid, basically. I didn't know any better. So, I mean, that was just my experience. Like I said, you may never have that experience, but if we think about it, 
These things produce thousands and thousands of eggs in the wild and in captivity. And realistically, not every egg is designed to become a tadpole. Not every tadpole is designed to become an adult. Not every adult is designed to live. Regardless of what people say, there's going to be some differences. They're going to have some weird genetic abnormalities and an individual. Some are just not going to thrive. It's kind of a survival of the fittest with, you know, with those, with those, like the Pac-Man whole, that whole group. I mean, a lot of them are actually obligate frog eaters. I mean, they cannibalize each other because that's the best source of nutrition, the, the strong prey off the weak. So my opinion, my, what I suspect is we have some quote unquote weak frogs that might not be as genetically fit as the others and they make it into the trade and a lot of them get into our hands sometimes. And that's when it can become a challenge because you're not dealing with a frog that is, you can be assured it's going to have a the great appetite that it might have, um, you know, if you just had a different individual. So um, I hope that explained, I know it was kind of a long explanation, but I hope that explained why I don't always consider them to be the best beginners. So again, just to sum up, if they, if, if everything works, they're great. If everything doesn't work, then they can be pretty challenging. Okay, moving on. What is in my current collection? Okay, as of today, I have three Tinctorious Patricia, all female. I've been looking for a male for some time. I have the three peri- uh, three uh, Phyllobates terribilis blackfoot, uh, an unknown army of uh, Epipedobates anthonii, uh, Santa Isabel. I have no idea how many I have going on there. There's like there's a swarm of them. That's all I can say. Two Phyllobates bicolor. Uh, excuse me. Uh, well, I have two Phyllobates bicolor of an older line, and I have two of um, newer imports. And I got to tell you, the older line that I've had for like the past seven years. They don't look like the newer lines. The newer, the newer imports are a lot like skinnier. They almost look more like Amarega. The older line that I have of bicolors, and I've, I haven't, I hadn't seen them for sale for like years. They're more like Terabilis. They look more like yellow Terabilis, only they're smaller, so they're really plump and thick. But I, I haven't seen anything else like them come into the hobby in a long time, so I'm really not quite sure what the what the genetics are going on there with that, but and no one's really been able to give me a straight answer. So I have those. I have the two Phyllobates terribilis mints. There's a two Theliodurma corticale. I have a female pixie. Uh, I have an Oyapok, which is the oldest dart frog in my collection now, presently. I have two female Azurius, uh, the radio slider, which I mentioned earlier, fluffy. Uh, my California king snake, who I've had about 20 years. The two blood pythons. Uh, the two horn frogs, which is the Arita and the Cranwells. And for the spiders, uh, I've got a couple of the tarantulas. I've got the uh, Alphona palma calcotes, uh, Somapoyas armenia, and uh, a couple others. I've got, there's a bunch of them going on in there. Um, and then I've got the two dogs, uh, the Boxster and the little dog is the Pit Bulldog mix. So uh, it's there, you know, it's like having two tanks in the house. So that's basically what I'm working with now. There may be a few, uh, maybe a couple other odds and ends in there that I forgot about. Oh, I've got a fish. I've got the Oscar fish as well. And uh, my, one of my daughters has a crested gecko, which I kind of act as its custodian. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm working with now. I'm kind of looking to maintain my collection as is and not build up. But, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm working with now. What are some good resources for amphibian keepers? Well, for dart frogs, I would say The Complete Ufaga Pamilio is a great book. It was originally printed in German, but there are English versions available. I think I bought mine on Amazon. It was a little bit on the pricey side, but um, 
it was still it's still a good research. And even though it says Ufaga Pamilio, the information in there is is really, really I mean you can transfer it to so many other different dark frog species. It's got a lot of really great plates and illustrations. It's got ma- photographs of many, many different locales of Pamilio. There's chapters on vivarium design, water quality. Uh, I mean, it really, if, if you wanted to know about the dart frog hobby, that would probably be the best resource I would say to go to. For other species, uh, Devin Edmonds, who's been, he's been on the show. He has some great books about tree frogs and salamanders and a few other species. So uh, go check out some of Devin's books. I think those are available on Amazon too. For medical and anatomical reference, I would say get Mater's Reptile and Amphibian Medicine and Surgery. The amphibian information, there isn't a tremendous amount in there, but it's more than nothing. Uh, the reptile content in there is really, really good too. I don't know if you guys keep reptiles as well. I, I know most of you do. So it, it is a good investment. It's a bit of an expensive book. I think it's about like 200 bucks American. So it's, it is a bit of investment. I bought mine like a year and a half ago and I read the whole thing cover to cover. So it, it is a good resource. It, it is helpful, but... Again, it's kind of an it's kind of a big commitment price wise. Another one, and it's it's old, is Whitaker's. Excuse me, Wright and Whitaker's Amphibian Medicine and Captive Husbandry. The book's old and it's kind of out of date, but it's still a tremendous resource. And some things like taxonomy and stuff has changed, and there's obviously been new papers and developments since it was authored. But a lot of the basics, things, certain things like anatomy, and um, it, it's just it's a good re- it's a good resource. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that everything in there is current and up to date, but for fundamentals and a lot of information, just just get it. You know what I mean? It's really the only text that I could find that was solely dedicated to amphibian medicine. And again, it's expensive. It was about like a hundred. It was a hundred plus dollars here in the U.S. So uh, between that and Mater's, you know, get your get your birthday money ready because they're exp- they're expensive books. And of course, I'd recommend scientific papers as well if you want to kind of keep ahead of the game in terms of what's happening with wild animals. Scientific journals are a great way to go. I've had a lot of people on the show who work in this in science or technology or what I mean I've had different people from you know all different walks of life who work professionally with frogs in some sort of study capacity. So I mean a lot of those people go back, listen to the old shows. I'm sure those people will be happy to send you a link or an email, uh, email you a copy of the papers. I know papers aren't always within the public grasp, but if you can get a hold of an abstract, you can find the authors and reach out to them. I don't think I've ever had an issue reaching out to someone for information or a paper and the person's refused. So like I said, if you're looking for a particular topic, just kind of do an internet search, find some scientists who might be working with it, email that person, see if you can get it, see if you can get a link. You know, it's, it's not, you got to look for it. That's the only issue is you got to, you got to kind of dig around to find papers, but they're out there. And, um, Another good resource is, um, I hope it's the show. I hope you guys are using the show as a resource because that was kind of what I designed it for was uh, in part to also just create this one big master resource that will give you guys a kind of a holistic approach in terms of you know what to do if you want to work with these animals. So um, yeah, go back, some listen to some old episodes. There's plenty of experts there. Reach out to those people if you have questions. I mean, they've all been good people, so. Now, the last question here, and this is the one that I really had to think about the most. It's, uh, has having a platform such as the podcast, has it changed my views of the hobby? This is a great question. Um, the short answer is yes, it, it has changed my view of the hobby. 
it's made me understand the extent to which people actually really care and invest themselves in this hobby and how some people like myself have made this their 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 whole lives their whole existence i guess is just based around this you know i mean these are people who get up in the morning and go to bed and their whole day is just is is frogs or salamanders or toads or whatever so it's really showed me that there are people out there who have the same enthusiasm for working with these species as I do. So it's made me think more favorable on the hobby because I found that there is a lot of people out there who have a very, very high level approach and just really enjoy all aspects of it. Um, you know, the fact that people enjoy listening to content that is not always about care for frogs, the fact that people appreciate talking to me about toxicity or um, natural history, um, vivarium building. I mean, just all these different topics. And the fact that there's just this one common denominator to me has just been, um, it's again, it's made me think more favorably of the hobby because there's so many different angles that people can be enthusiastic about. And it's not uh, it's not a passive thing, meaning like, um, you know, say, say you go to a reptile show and you buy a couple of frogs, you bring them home, you order some stuff online. You really don't have that much of an intimate relationship in it. And I found that by talking to people, by getting to know people and hearing what they have to say in person, that's helped me develop an even better appreciation of the hobby because I feel like now it's made me a more active participant in it. So um, in terms of how would it, how does it make me affect the, how does it make me view the hobby? Uh, those aspects have given me a much more positive view of it. Um, some other things that I've taken away from having the podcast, I guess you could say that it's, it's allowed me to interact with so many different people and many of them I never thought I would interact with. I mean, if you asked me two years ago, if I was going to be talking to some of these people on the show that I talked to, uh, I never would have thought it was in, in a million years. So, uh, it's just, you know, it's given me also more confidence that people are willing to take the time to talk to me. I mean, who am I? You know, I'm just some, I'm just a regular guy. I'm just a regular person, same as all of you. But a lot of these people take the time to talk to me. And, um, you know, that shows, that just, to me, that shows, that just shows, you know, value in the hobby that people are willing to talk to a complete stranger about it. Although many of us have become, you know, pretty good friends. If there was a negative, and there's, there's always negatives, I, I think it's important to look at everything from a balanced perspective. I do ask myself questions, to be honest. I, I Sometimes I do ask myself, you know, why do I do this? Why do I, why do I invest so much, in from, uh, so much effort and whatnot into this? Why, why do I make this such a big part of my life? Um, you know, because it's, it's work. I mean, doing the podcast, it, it takes work. You have to coordinate time and people and whatnot. And I spend, on average, I'd say between dealing with guests and recording and editing, it takes about seven hours to make each episode. So, uh, it's a bit of work. So sometimes I think to myself, well, um, you know, is it all worth it? But I always end up coming back to the point where it is. So the positives always outweigh the negatives, but, um, I, I so there, there are some nights I think to myself, like, you know, why am I keeping these things? You know, why, why do I, am, am I right to keep them? Am I doing this correctly? Should I have bigger enclosures? Should I have smaller enclosures? A lot of it just kind of more self-reflection, but, um, I mean, overall, I think that this, it's, I had, I had a, um, a, a, I guess a good perception of the hobby several years ago before I started this podcast. So 
If you ask me how it's changed, I think it's made it change for the better. I, I guess that's, I mean, I guess that's what I keep coming back to in this, uh, in this explanation. But yeah, I think that the community has a tremendous sense of value. I think that it's been a nice common denominator for many of us. I think that there's a lot of people out there who have very, very different opinions about things in life. And many of us, I'm sure, would agree or disagree on, on so many other things. But this seems to be the thing that we all agree about. And I'm, I'm happy for that. And I'm thankful for that, that this has become a, a positive thing for so many people. And it's been able to bring so many different people from so many different walks of life together for what, in my opinion, is a good thing. You know, I think that the community has immense value. And I think that it can really change people's lives for the better. So uh, I hope that was a good answer. And uh, we're pretty much we're out of time now. I, I got to a lot of a lot of questions, and um, it was a couple I couldn't get to, but really just more for time constraints. So if you guys like this and you want to do it again, I'd totally be up for it. If you guys want to shoot me over some different questions, um, you know, I'd totally be open for it. Uh, we could do it again at some point. Think about what's on your mind, and again, if there's a topic or something like that that you guys want to hear on the show, if there's a specific subject that you want me to look into, I could see if I could find a guest. You could always email me, uh, amphibicast at gmail.com. It's a great way to get in touch if you have suggestions or whatnot. I'm always happy to hear them. Uh, and if, if, you know, if, if you think, if you know someone or something like that, that, that can bring something to the table, something that we haven't done before, something that might be unique for the show, uh, feel free to reach out. You know, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people and see what we can do. And other than that, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope I answered as many of your questions as I could. And I'll catch up with you all again soon. 